0: Hello
1: and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy and National Security Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Hyland. This week, my colleague Nico Safos talks with Chris Head with the Climate Investment Funds and Luisa Demero from the Bloomberg New Energy Finance about the role that concessional financing can play in speeding the transition to renewable energy in emerging economies. Concessional finance enables clean energy investments by offering loans, guarantees, or terms more favorable than the current market would be able to offer. This more affordable financing can make wind, solar, or other clean energy technologies more cost-competitive in some developing markets. Chris and Luisa explore how concessional finance is part of the toolkit to meet our energy challenges, and they discuss projects where concessional financing has played a key role in moving the dial forward for clean energy investments. Let's turn it over to Nikos, Chris, and Luisa.
0: Thank you both for being here. Um, Chris, maybe I wanted to start with you. Um, Maybe for our listeners who aren't familiar, introduce us to the Clean Technology Fund, the Climate Investment Funds. Um, you know, where do these organizations come from, what is the purpose, what are their aims, you know, how do you work, uh, and how do you fit in this broad challenge of
2: the energy uh, transition that we're trying to make as a, as a world? Sure, thanks very much for having me, Nikos. Um, so the, the climate investment funds were created uh, about 10 years ago, in 2009, um, to drive um, uh, climate action um, in the developing world. And uh, we're, we're $8.3 billion, um, and we're kind of split between four programs, essentially, the largest of which is the Clean Technology Fund, which we'll discuss a bit, uh, a bit more further. Um, that's at $5.5 billion. But we also do work in climate resilience, uh, sustainable forestry, and energy access. So our business model is based around working with the multilateral development banks to drive climate action. So we work with six of the MDBs. Um, That includes World Bank, IFC, African Development Bank, et cetera. Um, And so what we do is we provide them with uh, generally large amounts of concessional finance to help them um, invest and support sectors and technologies that they wouldn't otherwise be able to do, right? So we try to help them move closer to the frontier faster. And we do that by large amounts of concessional funds um, and uh, through technical advisory work, and through working through what we call a programmatic approach, which is essentially you work upstream on the policy work, you can work downstream on the investments, so you can come with a big kind of comprehensive package uh, to help drive action. And maybe as a follow-up,
0: when I think about, you know, clean technology—that's a pretty broad term—are there specific sort
2: of subsectors or areas that uh, constitute the majority of your focus? Yeah. So um, in the Clean Technology Fund, we, we primarily focus on renewable energy. So it's solar PV, wind, geothermal, CSP. Um, we have a pretty big energy efficiency portfolio as well. Um, and we also do work in sustainable transport.
0: Fantastic. Um, Louisa. let me turn to you. You recently uh, was a lead author in a Bloomberg New Energy Finance report uh, assessing the impact of this effort. Uh, tell us a little bit about the report, your main findings, uh, what uh, what should we know about what you discovered? Uh,
3: this report looks basically at past and future of concessional finance, and how, both how it has impacted markets, key markets for CGF, but also what role it can play in the future. And the key finding of the report is that it. Concessional finance has the potential to substantially speed transition from fossil fuel to clean energy in fast-growing uh, emerging markets. And this includes both more mature clean energy technologies such as wind and solar, but also new low-carbon technologies such as batteries for energy storage, for, for example.
0: So walk us through a little bit Like, what did you investigate? How did you come to that conclusion? And more generally, you know, how should we think about what exactly did concessional finance do to bring about the results that you described?
3: We start the report by looking at how CTF uh, operated and the concessional funds deployed mainly in five countries, Chile, Mexico, Kazakhstan, Thailand, and Morocco to understand what were the challenges, where it was successful. Uh, and one of key finds there, findings there is, of course, one of the roles of concessional finance is to, in the future, help crowd in commercial finance. And one of the findings is that seven around $700 million deployed to those five markets helped for those same projects leverage uh, around over $8 billion uh, in invest, investment uh, from different sources, including a lot from private investors. So that's already that already showed a lot of impact at the time CTF was was providing investment to those markets. Uh, and also, another key finding is that a key part of CTF work is flexibility, because technology costs fall so quickly, and the market reality, especially in emerging markets, because it has a lot of impact and a lot of influence of politics and economy, that if you don't operate in a flexible way, you will end up doing some work that's not relevant for for the time that you, you are deploying the capital.
0: Can I ask you to delve maybe a little bit more deeply into the sort of $8 billion, I mean, where did this money go? What type of projects are we talking about? And um, you can always think of concessional finance as, on the one hand, enabling projects, but you're also trying to maybe sort of drive change and, and do things that are not just about building the projects, whether that is getting the policy environment to be better or Uh, getting the cost down. So maybe can you give us a little bit more flavor on the specific sectors where this capital was deployed and what might we learn from
3: them? Sure. Um, This money went to different clean energy technologies, utility-scale clean energy technologies, such as wind, solar, solar thermal as well. Uh, Solar thermal, especially in Morocco, where they commissioned a flagship uh, solar thermal project. So Mexico is a very good example. In two thousand until two thousand fourteen, Mexico was very close to generation from private players in the energy sector. Uh, so everyone that was looking for buy or generate power from clean energy had to find different ways, and that way was through. Uh, Kind of like a virtual net metering, virtual self-generation, where corporations could lower the cost of uh, electricity by by using corporate PPAs. However, when those kind of incentives were put in practice, nobody could be the would like to be the first to do it. So what CTF did is like CTF through development banks provided investment to the first plants uh, to showcase. Uh, how the policy could could work in favor of project developers uh and after that mexico was like one of the main markets for for many years uh, in terms of cap- in wind capacity installed and that was not through energy auctions that was through corporate ppas and uh private generation for outside of the retail market basically
0: chris let me come back to you uh, play a little bit of devil's advocate mm-hmm. uh I keep reading from BNEF that the costs for all these technologies are coming down, Uh, renewables are competitive against fossil fuel generation. So why do we need still concessional finance? What is the role that it plays in an environment where you've already seen
2: the learnings and the cost curve come down so significantly? Yeah, good question. So um, I think there, there's a couple components of this. One, I think that, um, you know, just saw, saw data uh, earlier this week saying that this past year, GHGs had risen yet again, which meant for the second year in a row since Paris, you know, greenhouse gas have gone up. Um, so we have a long way to go and we need to deploy really every effective tool in our arsenal to combat that. Um, and to lower GHGs wherever possible, um, specifically here in the power sector. So, you know, we have seen um, the cost of especially solar PV fall significantly, and it's fantastic. And it's opening up a bunch of markets where they weren't before, um, you know, leading to record deployments year over year, which is great. Um, so in some markets, as Louise was talking about, in, in Mexico, so we supported some of the first wind projects, some of the first private sector wind projects back in 2009, 2010. Um, and that was in a time when private sector investors were very skittish to, to coming in the market. Um, there were some macroeconomic challenges. The costs were still kind of high. So we came in with some uh, with a concessional loan with both IFC and IDB on two separate projects. And through doing those projects, it served as a demonstration kind of effect where other developers and investors saw these early projects I said, oh, you know, IFC is doing it, IDB is doing it. They're pulling in other developers. So it kind of decreased some of those perceived risks that were there in the market. So um, And so now, as Luis was saying, concessional finance isn't needed in Mexico for solar PV and wind, which is great, which is fantastic, which whenever we're no longer needed that in that country. But I think, you know, looking ahead, um, and I think that, that the component on the tipping points in the report, which Luis will talk about in a bit, is very important. It's that you know, we can get to the point where solar PV and wind are cheaper than you know, new build um, gas and, and coal. Um, but if we're looking at deep decarbonization here um, around the world, we really need to get to a point where um, it makes sense to start retiring some assets, specifically coal assets. And, and even with the cheap technology, solar PV and wind, to an extent, we're still not there. So by deploying concessional finance strategically... We can help, you know, accelerate that um, that point in which it is cheaper to essentially start retiring those assets and really go from, you know, the five to ten percent renewables in the power mix to where we need to be, which is, you know, the seventy to eighty percent plus. So let's
0: talk a little about that future, uh, because I mean, the way I see it, on the one hand, as you describe, maybe there's some places where you have some success and therefore you're no longer needed. Uh, but clearly we're nowhere near meeting our broad uh, greenhouse gas emission reduction challenge. So um, when we think ahead, what, what's the future here? Uh, is it more of the same? Is it more about sort of continuing to drive down the cost in these technologies? Or are we gonna see that same approach applied to other areas where we maybe haven't made quite as much progress in recent years? Um, Lisa, there was a piece in your report that talked about this. So maybe start with you, and then maybe Chris, you can chime in as well.
3: In the report, we look at two main tipping points. Tipping point one, which is when a clean energy plant becomes cheaper than building a new gas or coal plant. And tipping point two, which is when building a clean energy plant especially wind and solar, becomes cheaper than running an existing gas and coal plant. And in the report, we find really good news for both cases. So in case of the tipping point one, for example, uh, we learned that by providing concessional finance for wind plants in Thailand, we could make wind plants... Become more competitive, new wind plants become more competitive than existing thermal plants two years earlier than with commercial finance. And in India, which I think is the most dramatic example, we look at tipping point two because wind and solar are already more competitive than thermal plants. However, India deploys and has deployed so much coal in the past that. If we want to fight climate change, we need to decommission those plants, not only just commission new wind and solar plants to to deal with like the growing demand. So concessional finance to new wind plants in India has the potential to accelerate the moment when we reach the second tipping point by up to four years, um, which means that that could have the potential to, transition and to commission wind plants instead of coal plants, that would avoid like lots and lots of CO2 emissions from those coal plants that would not get get Uh We also look at the countries that do not need concessional finance for those technologies, for those more mature technologies such as wind and solar, which is the case of Brazil and Mexico, for example. And for us, this is an indication of the time that that it's time to move to new and less mature technologies in those markets. So what we see is by providing concessional finance for energy batteries for energy storage, for example, in Brazil and Mexico and other similar markets, concessional finance could have the potential to kickstart this technology, uh, make it in the future help it in the future crowd in commercial finance, but also by providing and deploying this technology allow uh, more intermittent sources to come online in the future.
0: Let me pick on that uh, point with you, Chris, and maybe if you can share a little bit your thoughts on, let's call it technology selection, right? Mm -hmm. You think about our broad challenge, there's just so many different ways we can get to that target. Uh, And so each one each player has their favorite technology or pet peeve. So how are you thinking about technology? And are, are you thinking about, let's make a few big bets, let's make a lot of little bets, let's try to pick those things that are right at the cusp and push them, let's take things that are much earlier in the development cycle. How do you think about where you know your, your fund could have the biggest sort of impact? Or how do you think about how to allocate your, 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 your money?
2: Yeah. So I think uh, um, a couple of things there, there's, um, you know, one looking at some of the more, maybe say mature technologies, so the solar PV and wind. So we've done a lot of both of those in the past. um, But looking forward, I think there's still some room to to support those um, in a variety of countries, because, you know, it's not just technology costs and technology risks, which we're dealing with here, which has gone down for sure. Um, but there's market risk, there's offtaker risk, there's regulatory risk. So in a lot of the countries that we're looking at, you know, there's still no solar PV or wind because, you know, it, it just the, the, the regulatory and enabling environment isn't quite there yet. And so the private sector isn't quite ready to, to go in there yet. Um, even though, you know, PVs is relatively cheap. So um, that's kind of one area where we can support. And through working with the multilateral development banks, of course, they do a lot of work in technical advisory, work with the regulator, work with the government to help kind of overcome those hurdles. And then we can come in with, you know, some financing to help do those demonstration projects, those first projects, essentially, make those happen. So there's that. Then there's the more, should we say more, Immature technology, so the technologies that, you know, haven't been deployed to that extent yet. Um, So in the past, we've done a lot of work with concentrated solar power to almost a billion dollars, as well as geothermal um, for about half a billion dollars. Concentrated solar power has a large storage component built in, and so um, it can generate power even when the sun is not shining, um, anywhere from 3 hours to 12 hours. We've supported, I think, the biggest CSP project to date in Morocco through NOR, we supported, I think, the largest solar financing in 2018, which is the NOR Midelt plant in, in Morocco as well. But with that, we saw that in the early investments, um, by coming in with concessional financing, we were able to decrease the cost of the project of NOR 1 specifically by about 25%, and NOR 2 and 3, I think, by 10%. But also by doing that, um, we we're able to kind of lower the cost of the technology in general, and it had some global implications. Because it's still a very immature technology, still kind of niche in some ways. There's supply chain, you know, concerns, all that kind of stuff. So by coming and going big with that investment, in some in South Africa, we're able to kind of shift the market, you know, a bit. And so looking ahead, you know, one area that that we see that a lot of folks see, of course, is batteries talking about large scale battery systems that can uh, be hooked up to the grid and can help integrate renewable energy. So they'll charge whenever the sun's shining and the wind's blowing, and then they can discharge energy um, when there are no renewables to help balance the system. And that's something that there's a lot of interest in, in client countries. It's, it's a, a necessity really to get to the deep decarbonization. And it's something where, um, you know, to date, there's there's quite you know few stationary batteries that are deployed for, for renewables to date, I think 4.5 gigawatt hours or something. And so we think that going in with a kind of concerted effort and a concerted program at scale could tip the scales a bit um, in developing economies with that.
0: Luisa, let me turn to you because you talked about batteries in your report and the prospect for using concessional finance in batteries. So can you walk us through that uh, and talk about why batteries may or may not be a good market for this? But also, um, what can we learn from the experience that we've had so far in terms of how we may apply this uh, concessional finance to batteries?
3: First thing to highlight is that comparing to concessional finance for wind and solar, we see that the impact of providing concessional finance for batteries, for energy storage, specifically lithium-ion batteries, is a lot higher. And this is simply because batteries are still more expensive. So when you have higher capex, the impact of a higher cost of capital is is huge. So we estimate that for a lithium-ion battery project, reducing capital costs by even one percentage point can reduce energy generation costs by $10 per megawatt And this is really significant. So we believe that concessional finance and support also from development finance institutions to battery storage specifically could really provide like a lot of support for energy transition in emerging markets. Because as I mentioned, it not only allows the countries to deploy a new technology, but it also allows those countries to keep adding more capacity from wind and solar. Uh, in terms of how the CTF could support those markets, I think pretty much by doing what they have done in the past, which worked extremely well uh, and the focus also on emerging markets I think is important to say is key and especially in fast-growing emerging markets and this is because this is where is where demand is growing this is where CO2 emissions is growing but also in those markets new low-carbon te- carbon technologies and investment for those technologies are too, too expensive. So if there is nobody supporting these countries to deploy the technologies and to lower the cost the cost of capital for those technologies, we're not getting anywhere close to fighting climate change.
0: Chris, let me come back to you because you, you said something that really uh, st- stuck with me because I think it's something that people often underappreciate. You didn't quite put it that way, but you said cost is not enough. Just looking at the levelized cost of electricity and saying this number is below that other number, therefore everything will magically happen, isn't how the world works. There's a lot of other risks. Uh, so maybe just to build on this conversation about batteries, how do you think of that, not just the cost, but that broader enabling environment? I mean, we have traditionally not built utility systems to think about storage and how to integrate storage or how to price and enumerate storage. Um, how are you thinking about not just the cost side of this, but the broader enabling environment that you always try to sort of, when you see an enabling environment becoming better, sort of come in and, 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 and provide the financing that sort of makes it happen?
2: Yeah. Yeah, so, so on that point, I mean, cost is definitely one component. You know, the flip side is if the cost is too high, and all of a sudden, you know, that's very challenging. So once you can get the cost down, you know, that, that, that helps. But there's all these other factors that kind of we need to look at for this deployment. So when we're looking at some of our markets, um, you know, a lot of it is about renewable energy integration, right? Like, like you know, the regulators and utilities are thinking about putting more renewables on there, but there's an intermittency challenge, you know, and, and they see the value um, in kind of deploying these batteries at scale there. Um, and, and there's a lot of different things. We were talking about the Bloomberg Summit earlier this week that, that storage can do on a system that can kind of help out the grid. Um but there seems to be a bit of a learning curve there. Um and so that's an area where at least to our partners with the with the MDBs, with the development banks, they can they can help out there because they have the you know experience working with a lot of these emerging markets on these grids in kind of a variety of countries. So you know, so they can take a look at what does each country need, you know, given their low carbon trajectory, given their renewables mix, you know, is there a lot of hydro, is it solar, is it wind, etc. Um, and how can you put, you know, a, a major battery system in there? And so, you know, hopefully the intention is by going in there and supporting some of the first systems, it's the same demonstration effect that was had, you know, 10 years ago in Mexico. It's other developers, you know, other companies come in, they say, oh, okay, you know, the regulator's comfortable with it, the grid's comfortable with it, so we can go in and we can do the next, you know, however many gigawatt hours after that.
0: So let me ask you a, a final question just to go a little bit beyond what we've been discussing here. and. Obviously, if you step back, one of the major challenges that we have is you know we need to be investing a lot more in areas that we're not investing enough right in terms of clean technologies um, and so when you think about if we succeed in making this transition, you know what role would have concessional finance played or or is is it about taking you talked about essentially a leverage of about kind of like eleven times uh, Is it taking that to sort of 20, 25, or is it you just have to do enough so that the private sector can get there? How are you thinking about this specific lever that we have and how we need to sort of scale it up? You talked about some serious money, but when you step back and look at the overall challenge, it's actually not very serious money. It's Mm -hmm. serious money when you're doing it, but it's not as big in terms of the overall pie. So how do you grow that uh, sector? How do you
2: target that better to sort of get that mul- bigger multiplier effect? Yeah. So, you know, on that point, um, eventually in 20, 30, 40 years, um, you know, renewables and batteries are going to make economic and, and sense everywhere. Um, and there's going to be, you know, almost exclusively deployment in those technologies. That's just what the cost is telling us. And that's kind of where, where the markets are going. But we don't have that much time um, to get where we need to be. So that, I think, is where concessional finance can play the biggest role. It can really serve that accelerating um, role, and it's a tool that can get us where we need to get faster, right? It can accelerate that tipping point, as Louise was talking about, um, to get us there um, for costs, and so where we can start deploying these technologies um, much faster and at a much greater scale. Um, so, you know, but there's only so much of this con- concessional financing to go along, right? Like, we're supported by by donors. Other funds are supported by donors. Um, there's not an unlimited amount of capital for that. So we have to be very strategic in how we use it. And so when we're talking about the multiplier effect, I mean, leverage is, is important, like getting a good amount of leverage um, is important, but that's not the only kind of concern there or not the only key factor there. Um, it's more like what, how can we use the relatively little money that we have to bring in as much private sector capital um, as possible in a short amount of time as possible, so we're really trying to pick technologies that are that are kind of almost there, that are kind of at the edge but need a bit of a push. Um, and by providing that push, which may have happened five, ten years, anyways, but by doing that now and by doing those demonstration projects now, um, then we can start to mobilize kind of that big, that real big amount of money, which is the private sector capital, which is going to make you know going to make all the difference to bring that in faster.
3: And what is also important to comment is, as Chris mentioned, looking if whether or not the technology is competitive already is not enough. So that's a really good indication of where we should lo- look at and where we should no- not look at. But another important far- factor is policy framework in general and structure of the, the power sector. So, so another thing that we do in the report is uh, and this was a lot based on the climate scope project that we also produce every year, uh, is to try to understand what group of countries based on fundamentals, including fundamental characteristics of the market, including power sector structure, uh, structure of the, the policy framework, and also the maturity of each of those technologies which group of markets we should look at, and what we learn is that countries that have really weak fundamentals, uh, even if the numbers make sense, it will be really hard to crowd in in the future uh, commercial finance because those markets are not prepared and those markets are not attractive because they provide like a more compl- complicated uh, framework. In these cases, we believe that. Uh, the first step would be to work with governments like they do to structure something that is attractive or will be attractive in the future for private sector. But for those markets that have a structured policy framework or that are getting started into this, but still need to prove to the market that those technologies work and those policies work, are where we find that the potential is greatest. Meanwhile, markets that, are good in terms of policy structure, power sector structure, uh, and also have like good, mature wind and solar markets with lots of experience are where we should think of deploying new technologies.
0: Well, thank you. This was great. Yeah, thanks so, very much for having yeah. us.
1: As always, thanks for listening to Energy 360. Find more episodes on CSIS.org, on iTunes, or follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy.